If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview, one of the great guitar heroes of our time, Jack White. Of the wildly successful rock duo, The White Stripes. Churning out heart-pounding hits like Seven Nation Army, White has captivated audiences with musical bravado and a uniquely provocative persona. I sort of enjoy when people get me wrong. Even when sometimes it gets me upset, I still kind of enjoy that they they misunderstand me. It's funny to me. White now has a new hit solo album, Lazaretto. We have a live venue where bands can play. But this restless and rock star also has visions of remaking the country's musical landscape from his record company headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee. I have to sort of be a hustler now to just be a musician. You sort of have to sell yourself all the time now. I think you could have just been a songwriter at a certain time and everyone else would do that around you. You know, I doubt Frank Sinatra cared about what was on his album cover. Producer, record executive, and one of the greatest performers in rock and roll today, Jack White, tonight on The Big Interview. of rock and roll is peppered with one-of-a-kind performers, but there's never been one quite like Jack White. He made his name in the rock duo The White Stripes with hits like Hotel Yorba. Jack White, along with drummer Meg White, dazzled fans with their playful red, white, and black look, coupled with the hard-edged sound of White's guitar, on full display in songs like Death Letter. But there was always a sense that there was much more to Jack White than what fans saw on the stage. At first, the White Stripes said they were siblings. Then in 2001, the Detroit Free Press revealed they were actually a divorced couple who had married at the age of 21. Jack had actually taken her surname, White, 
In the decade that followed, the White Stripes would go on to win four Grammy Awards, including one for their song, Seven Nation Army, which became a kind of epic anthem for sports enthusiasts. White also won a Grammy for the White Stripes rock documentary titled Under Great White Northern Lights. How are you? <laughs> The duo broke up in 2011, but Jack White continues to push musical boundaries. There is Jack White, the rock star. But who is Jack White, the person? What I found was one of the more interesting and surprising American artists I've ever met. Hello. Hey, good morning. How are you? Jack, how are you this morning? What an Thank honor you to so meet much you. for doing this. Oh, Pleased to meet you. you. Please come in and sit down. Thank you. I want my Texas Longhorn cufflinks for you today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I didn't play football well enough or I have grades good enough to go to the University of Texas, but I'm always proud of it. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. I have so many questions I want to ask you. I want to talk to you about music. That You've established a brand, if you will. Perhaps you wouldn't want to call it mm -hmm. that, but a definite, a distinctive style. How would you describe the Jack White style when it comes to music? If I was, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but you know, proud enough of it to, to explain it, I would feel like what I'm aiming for is the truth, you know, because the blues is the truth to me. It, it's, uh, and the truth doesn't mean, you know, that that story happened to me, and I'm telling you about it. This is some real life. If the truth is, you know, basically, you know, when they say in the in the, the founding fathers said the pursuit of happiness, you know, they didn't say you know life, liberty, and happiness. They said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's the same thing. How I'm thinking about truth in music It's the pursuit of the truth. I'm at least trying to get there, and maybe you might get something out of it too if you're listening to it and you can relate to it in your own way. But I'm not telling you anything about myself and saying you know don't make the mistake I made or do what I'm doing or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a story and this is a character and he's doing something or she's doing something. And we're trying to get to something truthful that makes sense. It's very hard because when you're, when you, even as a preacher, you would have to sneak the medicine in the mashed potatoes. You can't just hit people over the head with it because people don't like that. You have to let people feel it's their idea they they related to it on their own level, you know? And um, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Well, that's something a journalist can relate to. We consider ourselves as storytellers. Mm -hmm. What I think you're telling me is you're basically a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. When it comes time to writing music, do, you, do ideas come to you or you'd sit down and say, time for me to write? How does that work? Sort of, I, who knows where songs come from? You just have to sit there and I always feel like, you know, Michael Jackson said one time, you have to let God in the room. I, I think that's exactly true. You have to sit there and relinquish all control. I think people think when you write and you create, you're the person in control and you're making all this happen as if you're you know, some kind of magician or something, but it's not really that. You, you sit there and you become an antenna and you just let things happen through you. And the more you let it happen, the more you relinquish control, the, I think the more beautiful it is. It becomes something that 
has almost nothing to do with you. And the songs, if people like the songs and they get played on the radio or sold at stores, they and get played in bars around the world or whatever, they, they're not yours anymore. You, they have nothing to do with you anymore. If I hear a song of mine someplace, it, it, I, it's almost like I, I, I had nothing to do with it. And I love that feeling. That's great. There's um, one of my songs, Seven Nation Armies, become such a powerful thing for sports <laughs> arenas around the world. <laughs> Something you never would have thought would happen when we were writing it and recording it. And it always reminds me, there's this scene in the the old movie uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy where George M. Cohen is walking down the street and uh, they're coming back from war, the soldiers come back from war to celebrate and they're uh, singing Over There, which was the theme song for World War One. And he's walking with them and he's wrote and written the song and a soldier turns to him and says, hey man, what's the matter, don't you know this song? <laughs> and it's, he doesn't say anything. It's really funny because uh, that's how it feels when, when you hear your own music somewhere else. It's, uh, it's like you had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I've heard the Michael Jackson quote before. You said mm. Michael Jackson said when it comes to music, you have to let God in the room. Yeah. I want to talk to you uh, about how you grew up, but I, I know that you come from a, a religious family, mm -hmm. and religion and spirituality was very big in your family and, and big for you when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel that? Do you still consider yourself pretty religious, pretty spiritual, or have you, quote, outgrown it? I feel like a religion's almost a a dirty word it sort of ruins the idea of faith, you know, belief in God. Religion's almost like the, all the stuff that gets in the way between you and God, you know. Other people's thoughts, other people's agendas, money-making ideas, things that are like show business and, and financial business in between you and being close to whatever God is. So, and I think I didn't really realize that until I had kids of my own where I, I wanted to teach them about God, but not cloud their heads with man's ideas and interpretations about God, but more talk about letting them think about God on their own. In addition to the White Stripes, Jack White is a member of two other successful rock bands, The Raconteurs and The Dead Weather. He has also collaborated and produced hit records for an eclectic group of iconic artists, Loretta Lynn, Neil Young, and Wanda Jackson. This is a man who loves music. The 2008 documentary, It Might Get Loud, told the story of three top electric guitar players. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, The Edge of U2, and Jack White. That film opens with White building a guitar from wooden planks a glass bottle, and some guitar string. This scene is quintessential Jack White. He is a musician, but he's also a builder with a meticulous eye for design. Mm -hmm. 
It all goes back to White's first career. Before he was a rock star, he was a furniture upholsterer in Detroit and even started a business called Third Man Upholstery. His current business empire, Third Man Records, borrowed from the name of his earlier venture, as well as the yellow and black <laughs> color scheme. Yeah, so this is they do all the mail order over here, they package up all the, all the, all the record orders. Hanging out with Jack White, the term Renaissance man definitely comes to mind. You obviously put a lot of thought into your design aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. For yeah. example, this is a very nice suit and tie <laughs> and hat. And, uh, you know, two worlds collide here in a way. I was told, be sure you dress down, Dan, a little bit because, you know, after all, it's music. <laughs> but let's talk about your design aesthetic. Well, uh, someone told me, I, d I worked with this artist, uh, this old soul artist named Andre Williams. We, he, we did a show with him or something in Detroit, and he produced early records like uh, uh, Shake Your Tail Feather and J.L. Bait and things like that for Fortune Records in Detroit, and we did a show with him in the late 90s, and he said something like, you don't go on stage in the clothes you, you rolled up to the club in. And that was just like a funny thing to hear and, you know, old showbiz kind of line. But he's right, you know. Um, I think, especially now at this day and age, I mean, if you look at a photo of what people were like a hundred years ago, uh, a downtown photo of New York City, everybody's wearing a hat, everybody's wearing a, a dress or a suit, and somehow we kind of let that all go, and now we can kind of go to church in our pajamas, you know. And uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I try to stay away from that on that level. But also, you know, when you go on stage in just a jeans and a t-shirt, you're making a choice. You're choosing to sort of be what I think a lot of the punk rockers and, and rock and rollers thought was real, you know. But to me, the Ramones, a punk band, they all wore leather jackets and kids. It was a uniform they wore. The Sex Pistols wore ripped up clothes with the... Uh, safety pins and that was their uniform and Elvis wore his flipped collar and his pompadour and that was his uniform uh, those were not and, and everyone considered all those people real reality like the dirty side of, of art and music and they were giving us reality but they were really completely dressed dressed to impress and dressed to to exemplify that and coming from the design aspect of, of interest of mine through furniture it's also form follows function you know what are you trying to communicate but the way I always thought about doing that was do the complete opposite. When I was in the White Stripes, we were so centered around the blues and the truth of that, that the best thing for us to do was dress everything completely in red, white, and black and completely present ourselves in this candy-colored fashion because we thought, um, if you can't get past that, you'll never get with us on this other level. We'll never share this thing together, this musical thing together. Only if you can get past the presentation of that do you think it's real. Because it's definitely not makes it more real to, to go on stage in jeans and a t-shirt and pretend that you're an everyday man or everyday working man or something like that. Because Robert Johnson didn't do that. Robert Johnson wore a suit and a hat. You know, and uh, he was dressed to impress people and make them think of something differently. And now it's so easy to make people think differently. I mean, everybody wears what they slept in last night to, to, the, to the mall or whatever. So, I mean, it's, it doesn't take much to impress people at all. <laughs> but you want to, when it goes to things like a Third Man Records, like the records that we put out, if it takes a certain colored vinyl or a certain photograph that's on the cover that's more flashy or some kind of gimmick that, that the thing glows in the dark or whatever it is, I don't care, man. Anything like that is fine with me because when I was 14 years old, that's the record I would have bought flipping through the record racks. I would have grabbed that one. And 
any trick that you can use to get people involved in, in, in before they get all the way down to the storytelling is fine by me. It's great, you know, because I think all those people from Robert Johnson, uh, you know, to the to the Rolling Stones, were all using their trickery to get people interested. Well, trickery to get people interested. Yeah. That seems a far cry from where you are at the moment. For example, uh, Lazaretto, which you just come out. Yeah. Uh, the LP, the long play record, the vinyl record, is doing, I would say, sensationally well, yeah. considering that it's vinyl record. Uh, what makes this recording so special? Why are people relating to an, uh, an, an old-fashioned vinyl record LP. I think when you listen to, like if you watch, if you're someone who watches movies on an iPhone or an iPad, you, you know you're watching the film and you're getting something from it, but you know that if you drive past a movie theater that day, you also know, well, that's where you really watch movies, in the theater. That's the real thing. I'm, this is like a small snack-sized portion of that. And I think when you listen to music on an iPod, and I do in my car and all that, like uh, when it's portable, it's like, this is the song, but this isn't really the record. I mean, the record is the vinyl record. What's great about it is I think that people have kind of, things have gotten so invisible with music on a listening level that the de demand for it over the last decade has just risen and risen and risen. And, and, and DJs kept it alive in the, in the late 80s and 90s. They kept vinyl alive. And then the garage rockers in the early 2000s kept it alive again. And um, now it's bigger than ever. It's the only part of the music industry that's rising in sales, which is astounding. Well, I, I find it surprising, to say the very least. Yeah. Well, question, does technology make art better? It does, it does, but you have to know the limit of the technology. There's a time when it's just time to stop. You know, I think amplifiers, you know, like uh, this Sears Silvertone amplifier, this was considered a cheap amplifier in its time. You know, you, you'd get this one at Sears. If you had money, you'd get a Fender amp or get you know something bigger like that. That was, but this was an this is an amazing amplifier. It's tube based and it's just a pinnacle of when they hit the 50s and 60s and they hit tube amplifiers, hit their crescendo, and that was it. It just got as good as it got, and that was it. A lot of times that happens instantly. The, 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 in the first year, something's created. I mean, the electric light bulb. What did that last? A hundred? It's still here. It's a hundred years. I mean, the new light bulbs still, just still don't even look as good as those fluorescents. I mean, come on. I mean, they're not, they're not, can't compare to incandescent light bulb. So I think a lot of people think I don't like technology, but I really do like technology a lot. You know, I drive an electric car. I drive a Tesla, and I, I, I uh, you know, I listen to songs on a computer, and I, when I'm listening to, to things. And but I know what the real side of it is. If I'm listening on an iPad, I know the vinyl is the real thing. If I have to record something on a demo on a computer somewhere on tour, I know what I really want to do is record on tape uh, in my studio and to, to analog tape. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Jack White. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Jack White. Rolling Stone magazine has called Jack White 
a Willy Wonka of rock and roll. Hey, hey. And it's not just for his unique sense of wardrobe. His record company in Nashville, Third Man Records, has become a wonderland for music lovers. It's a whimsical environment meant to encourage creativity and an appreciation for the history of American music. And this is a vault for yeah, what? This is our tape vault, so we have all our analog recordings. White took me for a rare tour of the archive vault, where he keeps all his masters. Now it's temperature controlled, humidity controlled, and um, which is a far cry better than where it was, which was in my bedroom closet for 10 years, a lot of these tapes. <laughs> his record store is filled with musical artifacts. This is basically my favorite thing about everything we've ever done here in the building, which is our recording booth from the 1940s. The sound is incredible. It's just through one microphone. This is the microphone, literally the microphone built into it. Yeah, exactly. And then things recording when lit, exclamation point. And people have recorded last will and testaments in here, marriage proposals. <laughs> we've had a lot of wild stuff in this room. <laughs> a lot of wild stuff in this room. Yeah. Maybe we don't want to pursue that too far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a scopatone machine. He is a music historian in his own right and a strong advocate for vinyl record preservation. The LP version of White's latest album, Lazaretto, sold 40,000 copies in its first week, making it the biggest selling vinyl record in the last 20 years. When we first started the conversation, you mentioned moving from Detroit to Nashville, mm -hmm. which you've done in, what, the last 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me, and ride with me here, the case can be made that among America's certainly big cities, Detroit is now in the, has the worst of it. Mm -hmm. And Nashville is one of the, quote, hot cities mm -hmm. in the country now. Is that one of the reasons you moved to Nashville? It was very hard for me to move. I mean, Detroit, I always imagined I was going to be there my whole life. It, it always felt like my home. Even as hard as it is to live there, it always felt that way to me. But I think that that is uh, the Rust Belt area, all the way, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, into Detroit, all the, the working man towns. The, those are really cynical towns, you know. They're very cynical about things such as what was happening to me and Magma and the White Stripes when we were becoming breaking into the mainstream and things were really happening for us and our music was getting out to a lot more people with the white stripes yeah it's very hard for people around it, 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 when you when you're in that kind of cynical environment it's hard, hard for people to understand what to, how to relate to it and it was definitely hard for me to understand how to relate back to everybody because i i didn't really know what else i could do for them and it became a whole thing of what I, I'm, I'm thinking 90% of the time of what I can do for other people so they don't have their feelings hurt, you know. And when you, like, win the lottery, I mean, what do you do? Like, if you give all your brothers and sisters a million dollars if you win the lottery, they're going to end up hating you a couple years later, you know. It never, it's never, you can never fix it, uh, that, that problem. And that's tough. And especially for a town that's not known for, like L.A. or New York, where it's, you know, success is happening all the time and everybody knows somebody who's a famous actor or something like that. Uh, in Detroit, that's pretty unheard of, you know, for people to break through. So that was a hard place for me to live and create after that, and I really had to get somewhere else. And the South always felt someplace, 
it's comfortable to me. I looked around everywhere, looked into Georgia and, and Louisiana and a place to live in Nashville always felt uh, really, really comfortable to me. Maybe it's because of the countryside of town. They look at music and the business of music so differently than I do that uh, I thought, well, maybe this is the perfect place. I can just kind of be comfortable here and you know, it won't be in co competition with anybody else. That brings me to something that I promised myself I would ask you. That in the 1930s, into the 40s, and into the 50s and beyond, the classical music of Aaron Copland seemed to strike us a certain chord within a lot of people in the country, particularly with the working people. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Detroit's a working man's town. You strike something of that same chord, but we live in a different America now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the way that Copland's music, at least we thought, told us something about America of the mid-20th century, mm -hmm. what does your music tell us about our country now? Well, that's a, that's a very tough question. Thank you for asking me that question. It's a very, it's a hard compliment to me to even be asked that question. Um, I think that uh, there's some people might who listen to my music and look what I do and they think that I'm some kind of retroist that only wants things to be like the way they used to be. And I can understand if they see that, I, I can understand that. But I really uh, want the now and the future to be beautiful. I want it to be as beautiful as the things that felt beautiful to me when I look back in the past. And that involves the, the style of music and the interpretations, the stories that are told, how they're told, the technology used when you're telling them, and how it's presented to everybody at the end. And that's really, like I said to you know Dylan one time, I was talking to Bob Dylan, and I said, you know, in a lot of ways, you guys had it so lucky in the 60s. You know, All these recording techniques had never been tried before. No one had ever tried it. The civil rights movement was coming to a head. You had that to take them out. Vietnam War, you had, the whole world was changing and it was first, and it was first finally really being brought into people's homes and people were, teenagers were having their own opinion now and they were, they were breaking free and running away from home and the whole world had a whole different outlook on it. There's so much to sing about. And so it's like shooting fish in a barrel to sing about uh, those kind of songs right now. And now it's an age that's a little bit more, I hate to label the generation now entitled, but it feels the sense of entitlement that's around nowadays seems to be something that kind of bugs me enough to, to, to want to try to overcome it. I, I, don't, uh, I don't see beauty in teenagers all sitting next to each other texting and not talking face to face, you know? I don't see, you know, that beauty in, in the way that uh, pop music is all recorded on computer and auto-tuned and, and presented in that, in that really plastic way. And I guess I just do my best to whatever I do to, to, try, to, to try to defeat those ideas and, and present it in, 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 into something I think is at least an attempt at getting at truth and getting at beauty. But it is a lot harder now, and I am a little bit jealous of the artists from the other decades because it seemed like you could just do your job and not have to worry about this periphery of stuff. In a lot of ways, like Third Man Records is a reflection of uh, the, the, the idea that I have to sort of be a hustler now to just be a musician, you know? You sort of have to sell yourself all the time now. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Jack White. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Jack White. Oh, I miss 
you've practiced in so many genres, country, rock, blues. Let's play a slight game. Uh, greatest country song ever. Greatest country song ever? I'm gonna say, uh, it has to be, for me, it has to be something, you know, by, uh, like, probably Hank Williams, like Cold, Cold Heart, or Loretta Lynn, uh, something from Loretta Lynn, and uh, I would probably say, you ain't woman enough to take my man. No, no, I would say for Loretta Lynn, don't come home drinking with, with loving on your mind. Because that was, that went in so many different directions. It was the female side of, of our race, our species, speaking finally for themselves out loud and and it got by the censors and it, it became a hit. And it became a hit in the country world. So don't come home but drink it with love on your mind. No, don't come home but Don't come home with drinking was really, you know, very important for the, for the rest of uh, pop culture and, and culture for the whole world, too. Not a bad title for a song either, Don't Come Home with Drinking yeah, with Loving on You. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, with Hank Williams, I, I would have said either Cold Cold Heart or I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, but yeah. we won't argue. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, greatest rock song ever. Oh, that's really hard to say, but um, I really like the Stooges album Funhouse. There's no hits on this on this record at all, but it contains to me that all the elements of what rock and roll is really about, you know. And you could, I mean, it's hard when you get into rock and roll because it, it's so. I mean, there's the Little Richard songs and Jerry Lewis songs and the Gene Vincent songs that are so important, and that people don't realize how important they are and how how they just changed the world. And, and, they changed the world in a kind of a flashy way, but also in, in an underground way where they were being played in people's bedrooms and in garages and all the bands that learned from them and pass that on to their kids and all that, too. Help change race relations? Oh, of course, yeah, all of it. And it's great because all, it was, it's so interesting historically because all that music was generated and invented in the American South, you know, which is, the, of course it makes sense, you know. There's so much more tension here in the earlier part of the century uh, that, it, it, it really makes sense that all this music could come out of that scenario. Because art doesn't come from, you know, comfortable places. Art always comes from pain and from struggle. So it, it makes sense that, but it's, what's even greater is that the rest of the world likes that music too, you know. We're always, as Americans, always able to sell it. We're always able to sell it globally somehow. <laughs> and it's, it's bizarre, you know. But you said that it's what rock and roll is really about. What is rock and roll really about? Attitude, you know, really, and whatever that attitude is, like just destruction or, or, or uh, uh, rebellion, all, all those kind of words. It, like where blues to me feels like it's about the truth, rock and roll to me feels like it's about attitude. I want to see when I see a rock and roll band, I don't want to see them be comfortable on stage, I don't want to see them be that, you know, kind about what they're doing, kind to their instruments, kind with their, their voice. I want them to be completely wild and uncontrollable and I want to witness that like almost like children's temper tantrums or, or anything like that I, on stage you, you want that to, to be rebellious and wild like that and that's what the early days of rock and roll was I think it happens like every 10 years the wildness comes out of rock and roll then it gets tapered down you know we have the wildness of Jerry Lewis and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Little Richard and Elvis and then for a few years or a lot of years it was like the quiet instrumental surf bands and the Patty Pages and a lot of the Nashville sound got, got to, into more orchestral music from the dirtier sound of the renegade uh, country artists early on. 
And it does that. It just comes in waves, and we, we, get, we get tired of the, 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 the polite version of it, and we want it to be wild again 10 years later. Best blues number of all time. Well, there's a song that uh, Blind Willie Johnson recorded, and it's called Dark Was the Night. And that uh, contains no actual lyrics. It's just playing slide guitar and basically moaning. It almost feels like a, a, a religious spiritual. And it also feels like blues. And it also feels like I can't believe the record label at that time really allowed this to be released. And so it's a, almost it starts beautiful and sort of turns evil sounding without using any words. And that's very, very powerful and very, very hard to do. And it, I think it was so important that, you know, I talked to Ann Druyan, who's a, the wife of Carl Sagan, and uh, when they released the, the gold record on the Explorer craft that they sent out of the solar system, right. that one day maybe Intelligent Life will find and play this record, that Dark Was the Night was one of the first things Carl Sagan wanted to put on the on that record. I didn't know that. And I just, I asked her, I, well, I gotta know why you guys picked that because it's so important uh, to me, that song. And he just said, we just love that song. <laughs> on a very bass level, so I love that. That they want, you know, these are, how beautiful that they were able to pick what songs maybe another alien race could hear. And they picked that. And what was even funnier is that EMI, the Beatles record label, wouldn't allow the Beatles songs to be put on that record. <laughs> Out of like royalty reasons or something. <laughs> That's <Ridiculous>. amazing. <laughs> I love that part of it though. Well, you've recorded so many songs with so many people and so many genres, and you know what's coming, having asked you about country music, mm -hmm. rock and roll, blues. If they're going to play one of your songs at your memorial service, oh wow, which one would you have them play? Oh man, that's really tough to say. I don't know. There was, there's one song I wrote called The Same Boy You've Always Known. Though I don't really know if that song's really about me. It did feel at the time that it was, uh, at least that sentence was about me. I'm the same boy you've always known. It sort of encapsulates maybe the idea as an artist always trying to paint like a child paints and always remove yourself from your environment and get back down to the reality of who you really might be inside and how some of us never really feel like we've grown up, we don't, a lot of us, we feel like we're, we're, we're all these boys and girls trapped in adult bodies, and so that, that might be a good one to play. What do we have here? This is an old-fashioned amplifier. Yeah, you said. yeah. The kind you once could order from Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, I, for the longest time, I was determined to only use cheap and broken pawn shop type guitars, guitars made of plastic and cheap wood that were out of tune. And I did that for the longest time in the White Stripes, especially to make it the job harder on myself on stage instead of easier, so that I'd have this wall to break through to get some to get somewhere better. You know, and if I could accomplish that on stage, if I could pull off a song with an auto-tune guitar that's, it doesn't sound very good, 
then I know I was getting somewhere. You know, but a brand new amp that always works every time, a brand new guitar that always stays in tune. I mean, it's kind of, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, you know. I mean, I'm all about putting my own obstacles in front of myself. And I find myself putting myself in places that are tougher than they need to be all the time. And I get sometimes exhausted from it because I, I want, you know, I get, I look at other people and they just do it the easier way. And I want, I'm like, God, why don't I just do that? No one's even noticing all that stuff, but I, but I know for me, I can't get there unless I do that. I have to make it difficult for myself. Have to have the challenge. Yeah, I think so, in order to be proud of it. What do you have here in the way of instruments? And one looks to yeah. me like it's old and expensive. Mm -hmm. The other, and I'm no judge of guitars, yeah. doesn't look that old nor that expensive. Yeah, this is a, well, this is a, this is a very, I thought brought this for you, for instance, you're from Texas. This is a very cowboy guitar called a Roundup. And this is a very American piece of uh, history, I think, as a beautiful antique. I think a lot of guitar players don't know about this guitar and don't really care that much about it. But this was the company Gretsch, which is an American company, and they really broke ground. They were the first guitar company to paint guitars colors, you know, paint them red and green and, and put sparkles. Talk about what circle? What? Sometime in uh, the 50s, uh, mm -hmm. mid 50s. And this was their cowboy guitar, you know. So they has a, a campfire scene belt buckle here oh, and leather of cows and cactus leather binding and see they have the horseshoe over here i just noticed uh, yeah the uh, the gretsch brand this is part of the cowboy thing and there's a knotty pine top and this is a rare one because it has four knotty pines and that's hard to find so but there's not that many of these guitars but but i, I always thought they sounded amazing too what does it make a good sound yes so this is a this is a guitar amp this is a serious silver tone that would have been used by like maybe howlin wolf's uh backing band or even Bob Will's band or anything like that, they would, they would, have, they would have had this. And then uh, when Axe got bigger, they would have abandoned these and get a Fender amp or something like that. See that, that's that uh, dirty sound that ended up being on all those records because when those guys went the first, their first records was usually the most important. Bo Diddley and people like that, they were bringing the cheaper amplifiers right. to the studio. <laughs> and uh, so you can hear them, you can hear the difference, you know. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is just an acoustic that I really love that uh, is really softest from some company called Victoria that I never heard of before. I just picked up recently. When it was sold new, was it cheap, inexpensive? This one's a little bit more expensive because it's, uh, I think it's a really rare, rare piece. But I, uh, I think that that's, that's the thing. It's, it's better for guitar players now that, that who are starting out. I think it's better for them to start off on cheaper guitars, like pawn shop guitars and things that are plastic and If you had to broken. play something on that right now, what would you play on this guitar? Uh, well, okay, you mentioned Hank Williams. You like... <laughs> I could play a Hank Williams song. Well, let's hear it. Her eyes were blue, her hair was auburn Her skin was like an angel fair She was her daddy's only daughter On the Tennessee border Well, one night I took a ride Just across that line I picked her up in a pickup truck and she broke this heart of mine. Her mama said no, she's my only daughter, 
but we got married on a Tennessee border. <laughs> well done, well done. And not uh, one of Hank's better known songs, yeah. but, a, but a really good one. Yeah. And if you had to play something on this, the yeah. classic, I mean, can you really play something on it or is it too valuable? To no, it's great. I use this all the time, man. But uh, it's like, uh, you know, you had that kind of, uh, the, the, the sort of like we were talking about the history of music and how things travel through other things. You know, you have like a, that Johnny Cash one. That, that Johnny Cash thing, that rhythm, when people, you know, when you get deeper into music and in American history of it, how they, you take rhythms like that, and that became, uh, by the time it's hitting Detroit and a band like the Stooges, you know, that turned into like they're there and like. Johnny Cash, that's Walk the Line, just done with a harsher attitude. You took something that was a country song of Johnny Cash's Walk the Line, which is really a blues song. They're all blues. So you take that, Johnny Cash takes a blues song and becomes Walk the Line, and Walk the Line becomes no fun for the Stooges with a lot of rock and roll attitude, you know, and then that influences all the punk bands in England, and on and on it goes. You know? <laughs> Jack, you've been so generous with your time and with yourself, and I appreciate Thank you. that greatly. For you, anytime. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Oh my goodness, that's tough. <laughs> I can't tell you. That's your that's your business, man. I'm not going to tell you your job. <laughs> well, did you come into this interview today uh, saying to yourself, "Well, if I, if I don't get anything else across, there's one thing I want people to understand about me, or one point I want to make?" Oh, I, I guess I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think I sort of enjoy when people don't don't to get me wrong. I kind of enjoy it, you know? Even when sometimes it gets me upset, I still kind of enjoy that they, they misunderstand me. It's funny to me, you know? Well, tell me something about you that people don't know. I'm incredibly handsome. <laughs> well, people are finding that out right now. Well, I hope so, if you guys let this right. <laughs> no. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. What an honor. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.